You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. Well, good morning. I see you, Ken. Thank you for that. My name is James Fields. I serve here as a lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle, the best church in the city of Louisville. And today, um, we are going to continue to embark upon our five-week sermon series going through the book of Titus called This Beautiful Church. Last week, we explored beautiful confidence, looking at verses one and four of chapter one. Today, this week, we'll look at and explain God's beautiful calling, looking at verses 5 through 16 of chapter 1. Next week, Pastor Nick will expound upon the beautiful community, looking at Titus 2, 1 through 15. The following week, we'll examine the beautiful commission, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And then finally, we'll look at God's beautiful church, chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. You know, this week was a historic week with the trial and guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin concerning the death of Mr. George Floyd. Consequently, most, if not all, African Americans felt some type of relief. We felt relief because justice had finally prevailed in the face of so much injustice experienced within this country. We felt relief because hope was presented where there was so much ambiguity where so much ambiguity remained. We were, relieved, we were relieved because black and brown skin was a credit to the same dignity, the same rights, and the same worth within this country as anyone else with lighter, complected skin. And while many African Americans were relieved with this week's verdict, some still remain numb to the outcome, and I include myself within that category. I remain numb to the reality that although justice was served this week, I continue to remain numb to the reality where justice has historically evaded other similar cases and trials that have come before this one. What are we to do with the brokenness that we experience in this life? What are we to do with the brokenness that we experience from one another? And what are we to do with the brokenness that we perpetuate even in ourselves? You see, brokenness is not isolated to our own individual experiences within this world, but it also includes experiences within our own various relationships. A couple of months ago, my best friend since preschool approached me with a dilemma. Jay, that's what he calls me, Jay. Jay, he said, I'm so hurt. I asked him why. (laughs) He said, I'm hurt because I was attending church with my family and my former pastor tried to hook up with my cousin. It was blatant. It was obvious. And it was disgusting. He said, I know you're a man of God and everything that that includes, but everyone is not like you, bro. (laughs) He continued to ask a very important question. He asks this question. He says, how can I believe in God 
when his pastors are so misguided? At that time, I didn't have an answer for my friend. (laughs) I was left speechless and even somewhat ashamed. So let me ask you to consider, amidst the darkness and amidst the discomfort and even the difficulty, what's the role of the church? Amongst the distressed, amongst the despair, and even the depression, what's the responsibility of the church? Amongst the disaster and the damage, disservice and the disability, what's the response of the church? In other words, here's what I'm asking you. What's the church's calling in these dark and trivial times that we live in? What are we to do? How should we respond? For the next couple of weeks, again, we'll be going through this it's a new sermon series called God's Beautiful Church or This Beautiful Church. Last week, we explored the theme, This Beautiful Confidence, and we came away with this, that a beautiful church trusts God, a beautiful church knows God, and a beautiful church follows after her God. Today, we'll explain the theme, This Beautiful Calling, and hopefully, by God's grace, we'll walk away with this, that a beautiful church is called to set right what's been left undone by living godly. Let me say it one more time. A beautiful church is called to set right what's been left undone by living godly. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you as people who are distressed and who are perplexed and who are somewhat defeated, but yet we still come. We come knowing that you are God and that you are able to help us in our times of weakness and despair. We come to know, God, that you are the God who created everything out of nothing. So, God, as we bring you our sorrow and our grief and our despair, even our anger and frustration, you are big enough and you are God enough to handle those issues. Father, Holy Spirit, we ask that your spirit will be among us, that your spirit will be the greatest teacher this morning, that you will cultivate us in a teachable spirit to hear from what you have to say to us, but not only hear, Father, but to respond in faithful obedience. May we as a church learn to live our lives with the gift of godliness that you provide through the death, burial, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. As always, I ask that you take my little and make much of it, God. May some soul be saved. May some mind be transformed for the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Crete was known in the ancient world for its moral decadence. The ancient historian Polybius wrote, excuse me, it's almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. The Roman statesman, Marcus Tullius Caesarero says something similar. He stated, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. Epimenides, the highly esteemed 6th century Greek poet and native Cretan, wrote these words that we find in, in Scripture. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, 
lazy gluttons. So how do we set right what has gone wrong? Paul rightly identifies our first priority in verse 5. Look with me in verse 5. He says these words, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. Notice Paul's first priority was to establish godly men in ungodly places. Why is this important? Well, because a beautiful church is called to set right what's been left undone by living godly lives. Why was this his first priority? It's a good reminder for us that godly leadership is crucial, crucial for a church's success. Do you remember Paul's purpose in writing this letter to Titus? In chapter 1, verse 1, he says these words, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, don't catch this, that leads to godliness. Notice with me that our knowledge of God's word should lead us to more not less godliness. Can I get an amen? See, a beautiful church doesn't just believe a certain way. They live a certain way. See, godliness isn't just about what you do. Godliness is also what you refrain yourself from doing. Godliness isn't just about what you say, but also what you refrain from saying. Godliness isn't just what you embrace, it's also what you release. Godliness isn't just about what I seek to become, but it's how I choose to live my life today. It's a good reminder for us as a church that the fruit of the maturity of the gospel in our lives will always be godly living. Not more knowledge. Not more programs, not more people in the pews, not more kids in our kids' ministry. The the, the fruit of the maturity of the gospel. If you know the gospel is growing in your life, if the gospel is grabbing hold of your life, the, the, the onset of that, the outcome of that is godly living. Why is that important, Pastor James? Well, because a beautiful church is called to set right what's been left undone by living godly, by living godly. Now, I'll be upfront with you. This is an arduous task. This is a big deal, guys. So so, so how then are we to accomplish this goal of setting right what has gone undone? Look with me at verse 5b for the answer. Paul's instructions are clear. Notice what Titus is called to do. Appoint elders in every town. Appoint elders. Notice with me that leadership is influential to godliness. Hello, saints. Leadership is influential to godliness. Men, you want your house to be more godly, you want your family to be more godly, it starts with you. 
Stop looking to your wife to do the job that God's called you to do. Stop looking to your children to obey and to follow you when you're not living godly lives before them. Leadership is influential to godliness. So so what kind of man should an elder aspire to be? What what thing should an elder get done? Let's look at verses 5 through 9 for that answer. Because we see that clearly in the text. Before we go to verses 5 through 9, I do want to share with you a quote that I heard this week from Tony Murata and also Danny Aiken in their book, Christ Center Exposition. They say this, God is primarily interested in who you are and then what you do. He well understands that the latter will flow from the former. It's a good reminder for us this morning. So look, let's look at me in verses 5 through 9. He says, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I, as I directed you to appoint elders in every time, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accursed of wildness or rebellion. Let's stop right there. I love this because it gives us an outline of what we're going to look at of what an elder must be. First, he must have godly commitments, verse 5 and 6. Secondly, he must have godly conduct, verse 7. He must have godly character, verse 8. He must have godly uh, convictions, verse 9. And then lastly, he must have godly confidence, verses 10 through 17. Let's walk through this together as a church. So the question comes up, what does it look like to maintain godly commitments? It, can, it, it, may, it, it means maintaining two things. One, be faithful to the church, verse 5, and then also be faithful to your closest relationships. Look with me in verse 5 here. He says quite clearly, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town, an elder must be blameless. Another way of saying this word blameless is also faithful. And faithfulness means this. Faithfulness means to fix and repair what is broken. Notice that godly leaders are, are put in place to lead God's flock towards godliness. Godliness. I know you may be confused this morning, so let me remind you, why is this important? <laughs> why are you talking about this, Pastor Fields? Why, why are you talking about this so much? Because a beautiful church is called to set right what's been left undone by living godly. Not only must you be faithful to the church, you also must be faithful in your closest relationships. Look with me in verse 6. Notice how he says one who is blameless. That means someone who is above reproach or unblemished. It doesn't mean sinless perfection. Let me be clear. If you're looking to me to be perfect, you will be gravely disappointed. Amen? It doesn't mean to be perfect, but what it means is this, to live one's life beyond accusation. It means that if someone came to you and had something that they thought that they could accuse me of, you automatically can say, yeah, not my pastor. <laughs> not my pastor. Not because I know that, not because I don't know that he would do that, because he doesn't even associate himself within those type of circles. 
He can't even be found near those things to even be associated to those things. It's not perfection, but it's proximity to sin. It's proximity to ungodliness. So he needs to be a man who is blameless. Secondly, he needs to be a husband of one wife. This means literally in the Greek, one, a one-woman man. It, it means a husband who's in love with, committed to, and devoted only to his wife. Does it mean that an elder cannot be a single man? <laughs> Does not mean that. A single man, just because he's single, is not unqualified to be an elder because of his singleness. In the same sentence, in the same breath, just because you're married doesn't mean that you're qualified to be an elder. What it means is that what God has given you, what God has blessed you with in your helpmate or your partner, your rib, if you want to call your wife that, your rib, your best friend, your partner, your equal, you have to have one mindset and one devotion only to her. Not looking and lusting after any and every woman that passes by your periphery or your vision, but having a dedication to the woman whom God has blessed you with for holy covenant commitment. So an elder must be faithful in this close relationship. He must be one who is blameless, one who is a husband of one wife. Notice also, he must also have children who believe. What this means is that the elder's children or a pastor's children should not be known by their wildness or rebellion. Again, this is not perfection, but this is a faithful perseverance towards Christ and Christ's likeliness. Now, I must admit, if you came to church early and you saw me here this morning with my six-year-old, he was running away from me. I don't know if you saw that or not. I hope you didn't see it, but if you did, I'm letting you know. He was running from me, and I was about to chase him, but I said, I don't want to be on YouTube or Instagram, falling on my face, chasing after my son before service. Doesn't mean that my children need to be perfect. So don't put them on that pedestal, because if you do, I will quickly knock them off that pedestal and remind you that they are not to be put on that pedestal. What it means is that they need to grow in Christ's likeness because I, as the pastor, am not just prioritizing teaching you the word, but I'm prioritizing teaching my children the word. How dare I, as a pastor, come here every Sunday and teach and preach and yell and scream and convict and encourage you guys every single Sunday, but yet I will not do that for my own family. How dare I, as a pastor, serve every single woman in this church, but yet leave my wife at home neglected? I'm not perfect in this, but it is a priority. Love what 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says, If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? Men, some of you, 
I look even in this auditorium and sanctuary and I see men who I think can become elders. I can see you as leaders of this church. And listen, the first thing I'm going to ask you is not about can you preach, can you lead, or how you serve. First thing I'm going to ask you is how are you taking care of your family if you are married? And if you're not married, I'm going to ask you how are you taking care of your soul? Because <laughs> that is the prerequisite to be an elder in God's church. Notice that Paul not only shares what we are to do, but he also shares what we, how we are not to do, what we are not to do to set things in order. Look with me at verse seven. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money. Notice with me in the verse part of this definition, as an overseer of God's household. This aspect of being an overseer of God's household is as the same language as elder. Some translations may say bishop rather than elder, but if it is a bishop or a pastor or a servant, however you want to translate this word, it's the same person with just distinct titles. So when it talks about an elder or a bishop, it's the same person. It's not talking about different offices. So an overseer of God's household, what Paul is talking about here is that we, are, we as an elder, I as an elder, Nick as an elder of this church, we're called to be God's administrators or steward, a steward of God's work. It's referring to a household manager who's responsible to and accountable to God himself. Notice in verse 7 that this word blameless comes up again. And as an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. Paul says it twice to make sure we get the point. <laughs> We're to be blameless, above reproach. And listen to me, this is not optional, it's essential. And this is the reason why he repeats it. I love this because it reminds us that godliness is the only answer for ungodliness. Did you hear me? Godliness. Not, not, not behavior modification. Not yoga. <laughs> not going to the right school. Not having the right degrees. Not having the right strategy. But godliness is the only answer for ungodliness. Pastor James, why is this important? Why are you talking about this so much? It's the reason it's clear. It's because a beautiful church is called to set right what's been left undone by living godly. By living godly. So what are the things that elders should avoid doing or, or not be doing? Paul gives us a list of five negatives. He says that the first one he says is this, not to be arrogant. This describes someone who's proud it describes a person who's a self-pleaser, someone who has no regard for God's will or the needs of others. And as I thought about this and giving an illustration, the best illustration I could come up with was this. You know who that is? That's Batman from the Lego Batman movie, right? And he's proud. He's presumptuous, right? He's arrogant. He, got, he's a, he has a six-pack, right? I need to borrow that before I go to the beach. 
He's not, this elder is not called to be a man that's not arrogant. Notice also he's called not to be a hot-tempered man. This describes someone who's easily provoked, one with a short fuse, prone to fits of anger and also rage. Not, you shouldn't be like this guy here. Yeah, you see that? And the elder also should not be addicted to wine. This refers to someone whose drinking causes him to lose his mental sharpness and sound judgment. It doesn't mean that you're not to drink, to refrain from drinking alcohol. It means that you're supposed to not drink alcohol to the point in which you lose consciousness or you lose your mental sharpness to have sound judgment. Not to be like this guy for my 30 and over friends. I think you know who that is. Our good friend from The Simpsons, Barney. We're also not called to be a bully. An elder cannot be a fist fighter given to acts of violence, verbal or physical abuse, or hurtful, or, or hurtful, hurting people on purpose or intentional intentionality. Definitely not being like this guy. You know who that is? Debo, yeah. Debo from Friday. Also, we're not to be greedy for money. Must not use the ministry or money-making business as a money-making business. Money is not an elder's primary motive in how he leads the church. So here we have six ways in which an elder is not to be. Then what characteristics should describe an elder? What makes an elder godly? Look with me in verse 8. Paul gives us some descriptions of Six positive ways in which we should look at elders. Hey, verse eight, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, and self-controlled. I love this word hospitable because this word hospitable simply means to be a lover of strangers. An elder is to have an open heart, excuse me, an elder is to open our homes and to open our hearts to others. An elder is to be one who is a lover of what is good. He is to be a virtuous man who has a passion for what is good. Notice, and let me clarify, good that's defined and described by God. <laughs> if you want a list of that, look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. It's not just being good. It's having a passion for the things that God calls good. He should be a sensible man. A man who has a balanced sense of life in both judgments and also actions. He is to be a righteous man, to be just, to be fair, to be equitable and honest in how he deals with other people. He doesn't play favorites with people. He needs to be a holy man. He needs to be pure and unpolluted. A man who's committed to godliness. I love this because the, the, the one thing that I, I see when I hear this is, is from Jesus. I hear the echo of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, where he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. An elder is to be a man who's pure in heart. And, and that aspect of pure heart means it's like think of a windshield wiper. Think of a windshield wiper that, that you've been driving across country 
and you've been driving all night and you know how it is sometimes when you drive for a long time, you get debris on your windshield wiper and you can't see as clear as you can or as you would like to be. What, 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 what Jesus is talking about is the man who is pure in heart. He's saying that that man has a, 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 not, not a dirty windshield wiper or windshield, but he has a clear one. He has a clear one so that he can rightly see who God is and respond to his character rightly. May we be pure in heart. May we be able to see God for who he is, not making up things about God, not having false realities of who he is, but we see him clearly. You can see him clearly. Last but definitely not least, he's to be self-controlled. He's to have control over oneself, being in control of one's strength. Another way of saying that is meekness. Meekness is being able to control one's strength. Notice these six characteristics define what it means to be blameless before God and others. Hospitable, loving what's good, sensible, righteous, holy, and self-control. So, so Pastor James, why is this important? Why are you making such a big deal about this? The reason is clear. It's a beautiful church. It's called to set right what's been left undone by living godly lives. See, Paul continues to emphasize not just in who, elder, who an elder is, but also what an elder believes. Look with me in verse 9. Verse 9 reads it this way. It says, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Here's the meat, here's the meat and the potatoes. Here's where the rubber hits the road. A, a godly man needs to not just have godly character. He needs to also have godly and not just godly conduct and not just godly commitments. He also must have godly convictions. So how does an elder encourage sound teaching while refuting those who contradict it? Verse 9 says it clearly. An elder is called to endure by holding to the faithful message as taught. He's called to, to stay on the line of the biblical narrative of the word of God that's been passed down from generation to generation. I love how my wife teaches our children about the scripture. She reminds them often that they believe in an ancient faith. It's not something that just was made up. It wasn't just something that was conjured up. We believe in a faith that has been passed down and tested. We believe in a faith that is, has historical relevance to help us grow in godliness and Christ-likeness. Notice with me here that sound teaching and false teaching will either be tolerated or will be refuted. Either we tolerate false teaching or we refute it. Love what pastor theologian John Calvin says about this. He says a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. Love that. It's a very good description of this role of what it means to be a pastor. So how is this pastor? <laughs> how is this pastor to maintain godly living within a church? What, what does that look like, Pastor, pastor James? Look with me in verses 10 through 17 and 
Paul will explain quite clearly what this entails. He says this, For there are many religious rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the command of men of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are, det- they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. I love this. Because a pastor must not only console, but he must also confront false teachers false teaching. In verses 10 through 16, we see this aspect of godly confidence and what it entails. Notice with me quickly who needs to be confronted. There are three type of people that need to be confronted. Those who are divisive, verses 10 through 11. Those who are deceived, verses 12 through 14. And those who are defiled, verses 15 through 16. I'll say that one more time. There are three type of people who need to be confronted. Number one, those who are divisive, Verses 10 through 11, those who are deceived, verses 12 through 14, and then lastly, those who are defiled, verses 11 through 15, excuse me, verse 15 through 16. So we have to ask ourselves, why do those who are divisive need to be confronted? Why do they need to be confronted? Number one, look at verse 10. They need to be confronted because they are destitute in how they talk. Notice what Paul says in verse 10, for there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. This aspect of empty talk or rebellious talk speaks of their attitude. Empty talk addresses their action. They are a law unto themselves. They claim they have a direct pipeline to God, but they have none. It's like having a cloud, (laughs) on the hottest day of the summer and seeing a cloud form in the sky and it looks like it's going to brain, it looks like it's going to provide nourishment from the extreme heat of the sun, (laughs) but it has all form but no substance. This is what these men look like. They have all forms, but they have no substance to deliver. Not only are they destitute in what, not only are they destitute in what they, how they talk, they also are dangerous in how they think. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. He says, these are rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. What Paul has in mind here is the Judaizers. These are men who were saved from the Jewish, from being from the nation of Israel. And Paul would describe them as being spiritual seducers. Their theology is quite clear. Jesus plus something. It's it's not just Jesus. 
It's not just his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a Jesus plus theology. And whenever you have a Jesus plus theology, let me tell you, it always equates to a Jesus minus theology. Because when you add to Christ, you subtract from Christ. There's nothing needed beyond the crucified, the resurrected, and the soon-to-come king that God has provided in the name of his son. Jesus plus theology will be refuted in this church. We don't need anything else beside him. We don't need anything to support him. We don't need anything besides God's word to explain him. He is God alone. And the very name that he's given, has been given from God should be sufficient for our salvation and it should be sufficient for us walking and living godly lives before him. Not only are they dangerous in what they think, they also are dishonest in what they teach. Verse 11 says it, they ruin entire households and their motive for ministry is always dishonest gain. Money is always <laughs> motivating them in order to achieve their objective. So who needs to be confronted? Those who are divisive. Verses 12 through 14 tells us the next set of people that need to be confronted, those who are deceived. Notice with me in verse 12, Epitomes gives us a description with these words of Crete, uh, the island of Crete at this time. He says this, he says, one of their own very prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Think about this. It's amazing to think, and it's a sad thing to be described and to be characterized as someone who lies. Actually, in this time, to Cretanize literally meant to lie. They were so good at lying that they actually created a verb that expressed uh, their people in order, to, in order to express what it meant to lie. Cretans were so characterized by lying that to Cretanize actually meant to lie. And we know what liars look like. We look like this, right? The long nose and the wooden face, right? Our, our, our buddy P- Pinocchio. He also describes them as evil beasts. Simply means they are an idol to themselves. This refers to people who live on a sensual plane, controlled by their appetites and passions, their lust and their desires. They're like wild animals that tear things apart without thought, reason, or concern for the welfare of themselves or the welfare of others. Here's a perfect example, in my opinion, of what that looks like behind me. And then lastly, we have lazy gluttons. They are self-indulgent. They don't have self-discipline. They don't have self-control. They feed and feast at the expense of others. And I'll, I'll give anybody a high five if you know who this is. If you don't know who that is, that's Brumman from the show Martin. Brumman from the fifth floor. Go YouTube it after church. Not right now, please. <laughs> Love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, talking about the people from Crete, he says, they are liars from the womb. They are barking dogs. They are lazy bellies. Notice with me, notice with me that that, that the beauty of godly living 
shows forth best upon the backdrop of sin and ungodliness. Paul knows what he's talking about. He's saying, Titus, I'm sending you into an ungodly area. I'm sending you to an area that is known for lying, for self-indulgence. I'm sending you to an area that is known for his laziness. But listen, listen, Titus, when you go to this area, it's of the utmost importance that you show forth Christ amidst the darkness and despair because showing Christ amidst darkness and despair is like seeing light, seeing the stars in the sky on the darkest night. The beauty of the gospel and the beauty of our God is that God, how he deals with our brokenness, is not that he just takes it away or, or the brokenness of our world. He doesn't just take the brokenness of our world away and then give us newness or, 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 or a renewal. What he does is he takes the brokenness of this world as a canvas and he takes a brush and he puts it into the blood of his son and he starts to paint upon it a beautiful picture, a beautiful mosaic of God's multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial bride. He, he allows that canvas of sin to be the backdrop for the beauty of his church. A lot of times what we do as a church is we want God to take away the canvas. God, take away the brokenness, take away the sin, take away the despair, take it away, God, because if you take it away, everything will be all right. That's not true because we are also broken. We are broken and we need to be fixed. The problem isn't just the canvas. The, ca the problem isn't just this community. The problem isn't just drugs and alcohol. The problem is that our hearts <laughs> are so far away from God. And if our hearts learn to, to open itself up to the God of all truth and of all godliness, we will reflect the very God whom we serve. That's God's purpose. And that's his will for us as a church. So can I encourage you to do something? Change your prayer life. Stop praying that God will take away the brokenness. Stop, stop, stop praying that God will take away the despair. Stop, stop praying that God would take away all the bad stuff because God, from the very beginning of creation, if God wanted to take away the bad stuff, he would have done it from the very uh, Eden where, where Adam and Eve sinned. He had the perfect opportunity to slay them dead and start over new, but he didn't do that. He sees our brokenness. He sees our despair. And he invites us to come for him to walk with us in the midst of the darkness in the midst of the despair, and create something beautiful. Why? Because a beautiful church is called to set things right by living godly lives. You know, that's our secret. That's our secret for reaching this neighborhood. It's not strategy. It's godliness. It's godliness. Living godly before God. Not, not just talking about we love God, but showing it. Letting God transform us letting God renew us, letting God do a work in us so that we might better exemplify the King of Kings and the Lords of Lords. Maybe the problem isn't them. Maybe the problem starts here. Maybe the problem starts here. 
And as we allow the problem to be here, and as we look into hope in King Jesus, Jesus will draw men and women from this community quicker than we ever could see or could feel or understand. They are waiting for an authentic representation of Jesus. And the only people that can do that are the people who are blood-brought Christians. Protests can't do that. Government can't do that. Only the body of Christ can do this work. No one else. Stop looking to other things. And place yourself on the altar and allow God to be your God. Allow him to show himself strong in us as a church. This is my prayer for us. Let's not take our, let's take our eyes off of here. And let's put them, put them right here. In God's word and towards God's spirit. So how do we confront? I love, I love what Beth Moore says here. She says, she tweeted this yesterday, so I hope she doesn't mind me borrowing it, but she, she said it, not me. She said, when, when the gospel has become bad news to the poor, to the oppressed, to the brokenhearted and in prison, and good news to the proud, self-righteous, and privileged, instead, it is no longer the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll say yes and amen, Sister Beth Moore. So how do we confront these wrongs? Look at me in verses 13 and 14. He says this, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them. Why do they need to be rebuked? Look with verses 15 and 16 with me. He says, to the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. I love this. I love what christ Center Exposition says about this. It says this. It says, when a person is pure in heart and mind, his perspective on things are pure. And that inner purity produces outer purity. Tragically, the opposite is also true. When a person is corrupt and impure in heart and mind, his perspective on things are corrupt and impure. And that inner impurity produces outer impurity. You know, if I can reverse back the hands of time and go back to my friend who shared that tragic situation that he had with the pastor who tried to hook up with his cousin. Although I was speechless at the time, if I could turn back the hand of time, I would have said these words to my friend. I'm sorry for your experience. I'm sorry that your pastor failed you by not upholding the qualifications of his calling before God and before his congregation. But know this, his actions, his wrong actions towards you weren't indicative of God's heart for you. His impure motives do not reflect God's unconditional love for you as his child. And his lustful desire only reveals sin that's hidden in his own heart and not within the heart of God. So what does it mean for us, Sojourn Church Carlisle, to be God's beautiful church? What what does it look like? What does it mean for us? To set right what's been unlefted, but that's been left undone by living godly lives. Let me give you three quick things and then I'll close. 
Number one, we need to praise God and pray for the elders of this church. Currently, we have two elders of the church, myself and Pastor Nick, who's in the back right there. Pastor Nick, do you mind standing up just so people can can see who you are? Thank you, sir. Pray for us. We need it. When you're laying down with your babies at night, when you're praying for something, pray for your pastors. Pray for your elders. We need it. Because, listen, leadership is influential to godliness. Number two, I want you to pray, praise God and pray for the leadership within our church. I know you may not know this, but we have many men and women who have stepped up and become servants within our church. We have deacons and deaconesses of this church, both men and women, who've committed themselves. In addition to that, we have a part-time staff member, Christina, who serves as our director of mercy and outreach. So if you are a deacon of this church or a deaconess of the church, can you stand up so we can just acknowledge you at this time? Can you just stand up where you are so we can see you? Praise God for you. And, and brothers and sisters, stand up, say, don't, don't, don't sit down, take a good look and, and, and pray for these people. Pray for these men and women as they seek to serve our God faithfully at this church. You may be seated. Thank you for stand, standing at this time. And lastly, but definitely not least, this is what I need us to do. I need us to pursue Jesus and continue to grow in godliness. Godliness is the, is the objective, not growth. Godliness. Godliness is the objective, not growth. If we pursue godliness, everything else will flow out of that. Everything else. Godliness is our objective, not growth. Why? Because a beautiful church is called to set right what's been left undone by living godly lives. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do love you and thank you. We praise you that you've given us this opportunity to preach your word. I pray that you would be with us and allow us, Lord, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. May we, as a church, pursue godliness more than anything else. And may every success, may every victory find its root in us pursuing you in godliness. We love you and thank you for the work you're doing even now. I pray for those under the sound of my voice who are believers, who are Christians. I pray that you would give them hope in the present reality of you as being their resurrected king. I also pray for those who don't know you. Pray, Lord, that you would allow them to see the beauty and to understand the sacrifice that you have given of yourself at the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. I pray that they will bow joyfully and willfully bow to the knees of, and the throne of King Jesus, understanding that he is Lord of all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle. C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.